You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back, fellow optimists. Sophia Tapia here, your host on the Future Positive Podcast a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics from the world's brightest minds. If you're new to the show, in each episode, you'll hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet we call home. So settle in because we're about to take off and dive into another radically optimistic conversation. It could be said that AI has a gender problem. Less than a quarter of positions in the industry are held by women, and due to underrepresentation, gender bias also appears to be hardwired into certain algorithms due to underrepresentation in data sets. Join Andy Caravo, CEO of Electrolabs, Kishao Rogers, CEO of Time Study Incorporated, Caitlin Kraft Buckman, founder of Woman at the Table, Ida Tin, CEO of Clue, and XPRIZE's own Nima Tatkaniku as they deconstruct and identify AI solutions that empower underrepresented communities and enable an equitable future for all. Hello to everyone from Los Angeles, California. Now, over the next hour, we're going to be discussing the various issues around AI and gender. In particular, we're going to be identifying those solutions that AI can help empower underrepresented communities and enable an equitable future for humanity moving forward. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ask each of the panelists to introduce themselves. Let's start with Andy. Hey everyone, I'm Andy. I'm the CEO of Electra Labs, and I work in digital medicine. So I work with a lot of sensors and wearables that are using AI to capture biometric signals and then use those signals to either determine care or clinical trials or different components of the healthcare system. I formerly served at the FDA, and I've been really active in thinking about how to use these sorts of tools in a safe and secure manner, both from the data rights side and the security side. Excellent. Uh, next up is Kishaw. Hello, everyone. I'm Kishaw Rogers. I am the CEO of Time Study. A time Study is a healthcare enterprise platform. We essentially allow hospitals to understand how people spend their time at work and how that impacts the work that they do. I'm a computer scientist. Excellent. Thank you so much. Ida? Hello, everybody. I'm talking here from Berlin, Germany. I am CEO and co-founder of Clue. And Clue is an app that allows people with cycles to track their menstrual health. And we provide them with insight based on their data to really help them understand what's going on in their bodies. Excellent. Finally, Caitlin. Hi, I'm calling in from Geneva, Switzerland, and I run Women at the Table which is a civil society organization that focuses on systems change by helping feminists make impact in technology, sustainability, the economy, and democratic governance. 
Fantastic. Thank you everyone for joining us today. Before we get started and dive deep, Caitlin, can you set the stage for us and explain what we mean by bias in algorithms and in data sets? Can you give us some examples that how this can impact our everyday lives? Yeah, sure. So the simple way, and of course, I'm the activist among everybody on the panelists and not the technical expert, but I think part of our work is about how we make impacts as citizens on all of this because it's really our right and our need to start to interrogate the algorithms, the algorithm makers, and see how the technology really interacts with us. So we know that everything begins with data and data sets. And most data sets are exclusionary historically. So they've left out women, other historically excluded groups. So already the data is a little bit skewed. The algorithms are based on that skewed data. So the algorithms get really smart and then they're sort of working on a skewed way. And then there's machine learning that actually learns from the first algorithms. And then you totally have a system where patterns are identified that maybe we thought were just like weak signals in our lives, but actually become embedded and exacerbated in this machine learning that is part of automated decision-making that we're seeing more and more in our lives in every government going forward. That's one thing. What does that mean concretely? There's a very, there's an anecdote that I think um, many are familiar with, but I will share again, is Amazon tried to 10 years of its employment data and benchmarked because they wanted to deal with the thousands of resumes and they wanted to do something good about hiring women. And so they benchmarked 10 years of their incredible high flyers who happened also to be white men from Stanford who had engineering degrees. So that was the data that they were starting with about what really the, the most excellent candidate would be. And sure enough, the algorithm with no, no intentionality whatsoever started to throw out women's resumes. As a matter of fact, it threw to the bottom of the queue anything that said like women's chess captain or women's swim team. So it threw women out of the queue. And that is of course horrifying. The big lesson of all of that is, is that once, once Amazon figured it out, they were not able to have the machines unlearn the bias. And that's really where we're at now, where we understand that once those patterns are accepted or viewed, the machine can't unsee it because it's only seeing ones and zeros. There's also another very funny example of the resume company that wound up when there was an audit. It turned out that it I privileged people whose names were Jared or who played lacrosse because that was the um, cohort of data that the algorithm was trained on. So we need to be very, very careful. There's also the most current example of the Apple credit card. We saw that even though gender was not even a consideration, women who are equally credit worthy were absolutely given one tenth or even less credit scores from this credit card. So this has implications all the way through from criminal justice system to whether your resume is being read to whether um, you're seeing high paying jobs for ads on Facebook to whether you're um, even in digital ID systems as we're seeing across the world that are being implemented that have these unintended consequences. So that's very, very scary, hair on fire. However, it's also an opportunity if we're aware I think, to sort of take algorithms and say we can correct for a lot of this historic exclusion 
And if we're really terribly thoughtful, we can redo the mix. Excellent. Thank you so much. Andy, a recent article that you wrote talked about how high stakes algorithms and prescription drugs should be treated the same. Yet with prescription drugs, we have instructions, we have warnings, we have doctors prescribing them. But with high stakes algorithms that can affect your lives in very similar ways, we don't have any of these. Can you talk to me a little bit about this and, and why, what you've learned from the drug development process and how that can actually inform us in, in the ways we deal with high stake algorithms? So I think this is an analogy that works about 80% of the time. And then of course, algorithms are different from drugs. So stay with me for the reason why this makes sense. And then I'll talk to you where this breaks down. One of the things that I drew from Caitlin's work is that for sure there are algorithms that have biases and that they perform differently. The trouble with al algorithms is that you also want them to do that. That is their design. So by definition, what algorithms are supposed to do is group different clusters so that you can find out what's what's happening within that group in a way that perhaps a human can't see. The question is, are those groupings happening in a way that you like and you think are ethical or are they happening in ways that you don't want? So if you think about the drug development cycle, there's a number of different drugs. Drugs perform differently on different types of people. And what you want to figure out is which drugs work on which people and how do they work. And so in many ways, if you think about algorithms and drugs, they're both trained on a population. They work well on some populations. They might not work as well on other populations. They can have adverse events. Maybe that adverse event is a physical event with a drug. Maybe an adverse event is that somebody didn't get a job with an algorithm. And so one of the things that's always been really interesting for me is that a lot of people make the argument that you have to know what's in the black box in an algorithm. Like it has to be interpretable. But for many drugs, we have no idea how they work. Think about a lot of drugs like SSRIs, we know that they work reliably, but we don't know how. And so one of the ways that you could think about it is the way that in scientific literature, we develop things like clinical trials. We understand what populations they're trained on. We track different types of events. We have warning labels. And so even in instances, if you know the mechanism of action for a drug, you can use it more reliably. If you don't, you have more controls on it. And I think that could be a really important model that you can use for algorithms, really articulating what is the data set that it's being trained on, if you understand the mechanism or how it's working, then you might be able to use it more liberally. If you don't, then you might have more controls on using that. Very, very interesting. Kisha, uh, we're talking about data inclusion and data needs to be reflective of the populations that, that it serves, but I wouldn't consider that just the panacea because a lot of the AI research that we do comes from around the world, but at the major conferences, the, the neuropses of the world and so forth, it's very North American centric and European centric. And oftentimes the researchers and developers of these technologies from Africa, from South America, from other parts of the world, can't even get visas to attend to showcase their technologies and their breakthroughs. Why is it important for us that the researchers, not just the data, but the actual people building the algorithms, the, the men and women, of course, are both gender-wise and geographically-wise representative of the communities that need to be served by these algorithms? So I think it's a really good question. I hear this question a lot when we have sessions regarding technology and gender or women. I think the best way to answer questions is why would the people that you're building solutions for not be involved? in the process. And I think we spend a lot of time trying to prove that people should be involved or included in the process. I think we're, we're way beyond the time where we have to include the people that we impact 
as a part of the process. So earlier, uh, Caitlin mentioned um, being an activist. I actually believe that everyone working on a technology project should be an activist for the people that they're building solutions for. And sometimes what that means is that you have to involve people that understand the communities that you impact. There's a lot of work in the tech space. We're doing a lot of AI for good. And you can actually be in the business of doing good and not actually doing any good. And you can be in the business of doing good and actually doing harm. And so that's why it's important that across the board, even at the table when we decide who and where and how is AI relevant to solving problems, you have to include people the entire step of the way. Another point that I wanted to mention is a lot of times when we talk about AI and, and technology, we hide behind the label, AI, technology, bias, data sets. I think it, we also have to put the human in the center of these conversations. Humans created the data sets, humans build systems. So we have, to, we have to get in front of the AI a bit because it can often be seen as a scapegoat. And if you read the news, a lot of times you'll see the headlines that the AI is biased. Oh my, something happened. Oh my goodness, this AI is penalizing women. It is no longer acceptable. And I don't even think we have to articulate why that's not acceptable. If you're building a system that should be equitable, then you have to have people at the table to highlight that along the way. So if the data set is not balanced, certainly there are tools out there to highlight that. But what about humans? And so I don't think we have an algorithm crisis. I actually think we have a crisis of caring. I think people have to care enough about the people that they build solutions for to include them in the process. That's the first step to actually solving this problem. That's a, extremely valid. And from a technical development standpoint, you've never not talked to your customer, right? When you're building something and that, and that yeah. So, so it, it makes complete sense. Ida, we're talking about data and customers. And one thing that comes up is around personal control of your own data. And with the Clue app, this is very relevant and very important. Can you talk to us a little bit about how this personalization of data influences the data collection analysis, especially with underserved geographic and socioeconomic and gender communities like never before? Well, first I want to pick up on what Kisha said that you absolutely have to care about your customer. And I think when you think about how do you make something that is actually truly helpful and valuable for people, you somehow gotta sort of think about what does every individual need. And so when we think about making Clue helpful for every single person, enabling them to customize the app and actually figure out what data they need to track is a huge part of it and making that simple. And one thing that I love about that is that it sort of brings together this idea that data can really help me because I think for many people, data can be this sort of you know, kind of fluffy thing, but by enabling people to control what data do they really collect and what insights do they care about, I think you bring that message sort of home. And so then one of the beautiful things about working in female health is that we all have this biology that we share and we all have cycles for many years of our lives. And so when you build a product that is helping with some of the fundamentals around what it is to be a person that has cycles, that, you know, then people pick it up around the world. It's helpful for many people because it's, you know, it's not all the same problems that we face, but many of them we share. So Clue has, you know, users in 190 countries, so we are very privileged to gather a data set that really is very broad and also reach different groups of people. I'm not saying that our data set is representative of the planet by any standards. We have, of course, all the sort of skews towards people with iPhones in developed countries, 
we still get a sense. That's one of the reasons that we very early decided that we really wanted to participate in the science community and make this data set available in anonymous form for science research, because we could see that the scientists, you know, they didn't have access to this kind of diverse data in any other way, really. We have learned a lot. I think they have learned a lot. And then, of course, we really want to make an effort that our, the people who gave the data then also get to learn from these new insights. Andy, uh, we were just talking about representative data sets you know, from all around the world. And this is, of course, very important in the medical fields when we're doing clinical trials. But oftentimes, clinical trials are not representative because it's hard to get people to be participating in clinical trials. Uh, you've talked about this concept of virtual clinical trials and how it can improve data collection. Can you expand on this? There's lots of different terms that people are using. There's virtual clinical trials, there's decentralized clinical trials, there are remote trials, and then there are more like digital trials. And so really what you can think about is there's two things. One is where, where is the person? So with COVID, a lot of people are sheltering in place, so they now have to stay at home. If you're doing a remote trial or direct-to-patient trial, they are physically in their home location, perhaps using something like what we're doing with telemedicine. That's different from how you're collecting the data. So you can also use wearables and sensors to gather biometric signals for people. So for example, if somebody has a tremor, like you have Parkinson's, often uh, many accelerometers and gyroscopes will pick up your tremor faster and better than a doctor, especially if it's in the early stages. Same with picking up temperature or changes in heart rate. A lot of these things are not as perceptible to humans without having it. And so there's a lot of movement towards having more sensor-based data. And all of those are algorithms. So if you think about it, Fitbit or a smartwatch, they don't know if you've taken a step. They don't know if you've slept. They're using AI. They're using an algorithm to predict whether these biological signals are asleep, whether they're a step. And so some of the things that you should think about is how are they making those predictions? So one of the things that people have really thought about and are looking into more is if you look at the pulse oximeter, they often are using PPG, which is a green light. And this will absorb differently in different types of skin tone. And so if you train these algorithms and you're not looking at the different types of skin tones, people can produce their heart rates or what looks like a heart rate differently. And so there's lots of opportunities for unintentional bias. And then if you're running a clinical trial and somebody's using and distributing these, accidentally certain groups might not have the same level of data collection just because it's being represented differently by different groups. That's absolutely interesting. Of course, now that we're talking about clinical trials, uh, you mentioned COVID. We've reached the uh, mandatory COVID session of every panel because by law we are required to discuss the virus. Isha, your work with Time Study is around using algorithms and AI to optimize and, and find productivity in the workplace and, and track burnout and things like that. Of course, with COVID, as, as we are all currently experiencing, we're working from home. And that's kind of broken down the barrier between the private and public spheres of your life uh, for pretty much everyone, women and men. How has this affected productivity? And have you guys seen any trends or, or interesting things that come up from this kind of new reality that we're living in? So our platform actually collects data to articulate how people spend their time at work. It was designed to uncover the administrative overhead that actually drives down what we call top of license time. So top of license time is basically the time that you spend working on things that represent your highest skill. So for doctors, that's time spent providing 
patient care. So our platform is designed to not only highlight how much time is spent providing patient care, but what is driving that time up or down, and also how does that impact the things that really are important, like the provider satisfaction with their job, the patient satisfaction, as well as clinical outcomes. So what we've seen uh, during COVID is, as with anything, it actually amplifies situations that are already poor. So in healthcare, there's already a lot of administrative overhead, a lot of that is driven by regulation and bureaucracy, et cetera. What we're seeing is that that COVID crisis layered on top of an already stretched system actually causes more of the same unintended consequence, which is that instead of spending time serving patients, now you're spending time trying to find masks because your hospital doesn't have enough PPE equipment, or you're spending time with nurses or doctors that are women, they find a mask and the mask doesn't fit them because there's this default male that's used not only to test cars, but also to create masks. It turns out a lot of nurses, the mask doesn't fit, so they have to adjust for that. So what we're seeing is that situations that are already um, undesired actually become worse during a crisis like COVID that is driven by the limited resources. So we're seeing a lot of limitations of resources driving the time that you need to spend doing what matters, driving that time down and stretching people thin. And for people that are already at risk for that sort of uh, dynamic, it actually creates a more worse situation. And for like nurses and doctors that identify as women, as women, they're on the front lines with patients. And now they not only don't have masks, they don't have masks that fit. So it's, you know, the whole cycle of gender equity actually influences the whole process from the start to the finish. I mean, it, it makes complete sense. Yeah. When the uh, default crash test dummy is, is male, even for women, it, it's a small male, essentially. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised when you say, yeah, that the masks are made for men even though probably it's more women are using them in, in those settings. You're absolutely correct on that. One thing you talked about in terms of the work that we're doing, uh, one thing I'd love to pivot towards actually is instead of talking about large companies, let's talk about small companies. And Ida, you uh, as a, someone who's done a startup and has done a successful startup that caters towards women, a lot of the startup world is uh, male dominated, male centric. Everything from the investors are, are males, uh, which then means that the startup people are mostly men um, because men pick men. Uh, and then the products that are uh, produced are male focused as well. Yet you've coined this uh, term femtech, which is around female oriented tech startups that bring products to underserved communities. It's very profitable and it actually serves a, a, a desired need. And can you talk to me about this whole process of how do you break through in this male dominated world? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know if I have broken through in the middle of the world. I think we have a long ways to go, all of us. But I mean, what I will say is that the problem with lack of diversity is that you have blind sides, right? Whether it's an organization or as a person. Like, so what I've been most struck with, having had many conversations with many great, brilliant tech investors, they're smart people, and they, you know, they, they come with good intentions, is that there is a profound blindness in the world of the reality that half of the world population is living every day it's simply it's it's actually staggering and it's a it's a it's a blindness which is sort of embedded in culture it becomes norms it becomes taboos it becomes but also just a sort of it's just not on the radar it's just like like seeing this part of the world and not the other part of the world so when i come and i speak to them about sort of the questions that we have having this biology am i normal am i healthy how many more years can i have children what is this pain what's happening to my mood my sex like there's a billion questions that changes throughout this life of a changing body 
and men, they, they want to understand, but it's like, how would they know if nobody told them? <laughs> how would they even think to ask? So when you think about who builds products to solve problems, right? That's why we build products and build services. Unless you have a diverse group building products and companies, you're gonna miss things. <laughs> and it happens that a huge part of our need space was missed because the one who felt it didn't build companies and products or had a hard time getting to build companies and products. So what, what's the most sort of, is very encouraging to see that over the last years, suddenly there's been this sort of crack, like this sort of opening into sort of, oh, there's this whole wealth of female health that where maybe technology could play a, a massive role. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it is hard, but I feel, you know, I care a lot about radical inclusivity. I believe that we need diverse teams to build for the world and we need to really include men into this world of female health. You know, when we talk about building technology, of course, we talk about building algorithms and we absolutely desperately need to have diverse teams asking these questions. Fundamental, I think it's so important. It really is. Otherwise you end up in very strange, well, you end up building a world that's not for everybody, essentially. The concept I always go back to is uh, I think female-led startups are twice as successful in turning revenue than, than male startups. So even at like a dollars and cents level, it, it makes sense um, to, to be inclusive. So absolutely. Caitlin, I want to come back to you. Uh, you started, out, started us off by discussing what bias is. For a lot of things we've talked about so forth have been bottom-up approaches. You know, how can we or how can startups or how can companies do you know, improve the situation? But what's the role for policymakers, NGOs, and governments in this uh, arena? What is the, the top-down approach here that can help? And, and where should they focus on? I do have um, two very specific policy suggestions. But what I just want to say to uh, what Ida said and a lot of what Andy was talking about is those of us who are fans of Invisible Women, this extraordinary book that really talks about um, the world of standards and how they're made to a default male standard talks about the um, invention and marketing and distribution of Viagra, which actually had found a cure for severe menstrual pain. But none of the people in the room thought that there would be any market or any need for, for, for solving cramps, which of course, if they had had any women there, they would have said there might, be, there might be women, like billions of them around the world that would buy this. But instead they thought that there was some real need for Viagra. So that's what went to market. So that's, I think, the kind of loss that we have for not having lots of different kinds of people in the room. We were working on this um, for quite some time. There was a group on gender responsive standards. We're also talking about the physical standards that we live with every day from the size of a piano key, there's science beakers in science labs. And um, we, this group based in Geneva um, has this gender responsive standards declaration and in May, um, all of the major international standards makers of the world signed it, um, including ISO, ITU, ECE, and others, um, to make a gender action plan so that they would look not only to see who they should include in making standards, which I'll get to, but also what those standards themselves actually address. Because that's what's really important it's at the end, is what, you know, what, why are you making standards and how are they particularly gender responsive? So when we talk about inclusion, um, we're starting to do a lot of work around public procurement. Because I think one way to look at the inclusion of more women, more, uh, more diverse teams, we'll just talk about diversity writ large. Because when we talk about gender, when we talk about women at Women at the Table, we look at gender equality as a stealth app 
for democracy. And we're really talking about including all peoples that have been excluded. But in this particular case, we are talking about women and we're thinking that public sector monies that are being put towards automated decision-making that are to all sorts of algorithms that are helping us um, automate our government. If there were set-asides for women-owned businesses and that those women-owned businesses were also included women teams that were the designers, that were the coders, that were the makers. So it's not only about making a whole bunch of new female oligarchs and Mark Zuckerbergs, which would also be really wonderful for those among us that, that, that want to join the oligarchy, but we also really start to sort of extend the way that women are part of a, a design process writ large. So we think that that's a policy decision that um, could be socialized and could absolutely work. Then the other thing is to look at open data sets um, or to collaborative data sets or to new data sets. We know that um, there are certain groups that are making data sets just for their particular ethnic group because nothing's ever been studied. We know that medical clinical trials in general have never even included women in most of the, the trials. So just in terms of re evaluating what was in the original data, what we need to do to augment it, um, I think is also a really important thing for policymakers. And then the final thing would be, say education, because it doesn't really sound really right, but policymakers have to have the courage and they have to um, be encouraged to ask questions of the algorithm makers. So this isn't a it isn't about math and it isn't about like who did best at math at all. It's really about what are the assumptions that you're dealing with? Why does your data give me that answer and not this answer? Because there's a lot of decisions that are made that are, I think, passive decisions in this process. And that if there was a real discussion and real dialogue all the way down the road, that we wouldn't uh, get ourselves into some of the problems that we have. Excellent. Uh, really, really interesting. I, I think the one takeaway I, I always have is um, the ability to like envision a better future oftentimes involves you seeing in a model or an example. So, so if you can have a representative, a Zuckerberg, a female Zuckerberg, it will inspire so many people to head them in that direction. Of course, that can even be like a teacher or it can be a middle manager or it can be a startup founder. Um, but you are, you, you need that as part of the ecosystem to, to even th start thinking about, oh, I can do that. Right. But it's not only about making more unicorns. I think yeah, that we yeah. really have to find a sort of, we have to go wide, we have to go horizontally, and it's, it's, and it's not only about owning the company, right? It's also about yeah. having a yeah. great idea. It's, it's about talking to your community. And I think we can also reconceive what that, what that means in terms of what an inspirational model might look like. Exactly, fantastic. Uh, all right, so if you can imagine a future state, a, a better future state, in terms of gender uh, equity, uh, what is the specific breakthrough or breakthroughs that you most want to see happen? I'm gonna start with uh, Andy. I mean, I, I would say the biggest breakthrough is definitely not gonna be tech. I would think tech and algorithms actually cause more of it. I would say, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have is everybody wants yes, no answers. Like things are good, they're bad. I can fit this in a tweet, this thing is fine. And for whatever reason, we do not have like really good ways of talking about the nuance and the gray space and all of this is gray. I mean, I think there's some instances where like, I feel like it's pretty clear, but others might disagree. 
And when we live in a world of like virality and misinformation, and then people are just arguing two totally different things, I think there needs to be a lot more ways that people can come to together at the table rather than fighting with each other, which is probably obvious for like most things in society. Thank you. Kisha? I see a, a huge opportunity for us to redefine what it means to work in the space. Um, a lot of times when we talk about AI, we're very technically focused. And, you know, I have a computer science degree. I've spent 25 years building software. Um, what I'd like to see is a broader vision for who makes AI, um, but also some recognition that there are other forms of intelligence, right? So some of these projects are successful to the degree that the people on the project know that they don't know everything. They don't know half of what they need to know in order to deliver a great AI solution. And if you can show up that way, then you're open to actually hearing the ideas of people that you may not have considered to be a team member on your project. Um, I think this is a great opportunity to expand how we think about how technology, um, but also I think what's required is that people have to be willing to be uncomfortable long enough to get to the other side because you know even if you're thinking about data sets everything is biased so you go into not to see if it is biased but to see where it is biased and so it's a different way of thinking and you know what i'd like to see is that people think about this entirely differently i think we don't have to demonstrate or prove that women or underrepresented populations should be included of course they should be if you're building something for them they should be involved in process. I think what we need to be thinking about is how do we work together to ensure that AI is beneficial. And there are tons of organizations that are already working on this space. Um, AI for Africa is one. There are organizations around the globe that are actually already thinking about this. And so what I'd like to see is technicians actually reaching out to the communities that actually are already aware of the things that they're not aware of. But in order to get there, you have to be willing to admit that you don't know. Next one is Ida. So when I think about what future I'm hoping for in breakthroughs, I will say I think we need a really deep conversation about ethics and about what world we actually want to create. And if we only care about money, we're going to end up in very funky places, whether it's building algorithms or products or anything. That's also why it's important to have diversity, right? Because then people have different things they value and you end up with some good balance of, you know, something that works for everybody. And, so I say that on a high level, I think that's a systemic problem we're facing and actually maybe Corona might be, you know, breaking things open and we all sort of reconsidering everything a little bit. If I could choose where I'd love AI to make a breakthrough, I would say in female health, there is so much we can do for sort of preventive care. I would love to see people building many more algorithms to understand even just the data set that we hold at Clue, probably one of the largest in female cycles. I bet you we could learn so much if we had all, if we could learn more about what it can tell us to help people stay healthy rather than treat disease. So I'm, I'm very curious about what great things we can do with algorithms in female health if we, if we have good ethics. Absolutely. Caitlin? Yeah, I mean, to come off, I agree with the ethics. The others know that I feel very strongly that we have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and that this is such a fabulous document with settled law that we can actually go off from there and just say we hold those values close to our hearts and therefore what 
kind of tech reflects that. That would be my first wish that we start looking at what, what the settled law is in this universal declaration of human rights. The second thing would be a few less pizza delivery apps and a few more sort of sustainable, maintainable water wells um, built in different places. I mean, there's just so much that needs to be solved and is needed in the world. And I think that, that we're really somehow lacking imagination about using the tech to solve it, probably because we're very focused on its being able to be monetized. But I think for me, in this future state, I would have tech that actually looks at historic inequities, social inequities, racial inequities, gender inequities, and actually uses the tech to correct for those inequities. Instead of merely saying, as privacy activists now are starting to do, it's like, we need the status quo. The status quo isn't good enough like for us to fight for what we have at 2020 levels, right? So what could we do with the tech to sort of upend the system in a way that makes it really equitable for everybody? And scientists have a big part of that. And that's my final point, is that I see that a lot of technologists, especially um, students, um, university students, don't see that it is their right. They go, who am I? <laughs> Who am I to decide what's fair? Who am I to say? And, and, and who are any of us, right? We're citizens and we together decide on the kind of world that we want to live in. So, you know, this is a call to those technologists out there to invent what is going to serve people. For students and researchers starting out in the relatively new field of machine learning and bias fairness, what do you think are the specific aspects in this field that need to be more addressed, to need to be addressed more rigorously? So for the students and researchers who are starting out, what, what aspects of this field should, should they be tackling, basically? I think definitely transparency, also data privacy, ownership. Um, there's a lot to know around uh, data privacy and ownership, and it, it gets really complicated uh, when you start to think outside of where you live, um, because as you think across the regions, things get very complicated. So I'd like to see more um, technical institutes address that in their curriculum. Uh, we've already mentioned ethics, uh, which I think should be the core and a fundamental uh, that's taught in technical classes. Um, I think also um, it's fair to note that, you know, a great percentage of people that are in AI research actually are from a university. What does that look like for people that did not go to a university? Um, that actually graduated high school and learned tech, you know, on their own. What does this look like for them? So as we're talking about technologists and people that work in AI, uh, again, I think we need to broaden our vision of who we're thinking about when we talk about who can make AI. That's a great to point. To echo that, I think sometimes when people say, oh, computers, like, uh, or ethics, like, people kind of are like, yeah, of course, like, you should add that in. But there's a really good piece that I would recommend reading that came from cryptographers. So cryptography, for people who don't know, is effectively what underbakes a lot of encryption. So it says who gets to see what and when. And effectively, cryptography changes power dynamics. And so a lot of academic researchers were saying, well, like, I'm just building like different encryption systems. It doesn't matter. People pick how they use them. But there is a very strong moral imperative that you have to decide if you're gonna release a new system into the world, what is your social responsibility? And I think this is very true also for algorithms, which are shifting power dynamics um, and have very meaningful impacts on people. And so things like ethical training and other pieces, I think are core to determining whether or not you're gonna ship something into the world. How can we clean up data that is already biased? Is that even possible? 
I think I would start by trying to figure out why is it biased? You know, because the, the data set represents what it represents. Um, so we're, we're, data tells a story. Uh, and so it's more than just fields and values and labels. Uh, it was collected the way that it was collected from the people that it represents for a reason. So uh, when, it, when you encounter quote unquote biased data sets, um, my first step would be to understand the data. What, how did it get to this place? Um, I think also we should always be open to saying no when AI is not a relevant tool to solve a problem. Um, I think that should be a part of the conversation as well. It's also after the data, it's also the model, isn't it, right? So you want to interrogate this data, which we're kind of stuck with because people aren't going to stop building things while we build these more pure and equal data sets. So it's the, in the modeling and in that process, there's some opportunities too, I think. It's awareness. You, you actually bring up a really great point. There was a speaker, I, I forget her name. She's a researcher at Microsoft uh, in New York. And she mentioned exactly this point of, we shouldn't just say algorithmic bias, right? Because it can be in the data set. It can be in the algorithm. It can even be in the implementation. My favorite example of this is they built a tool for judges to determine how much bail should be set for, for prisoners. And the, they, the results were still biased. And they were like, what happened? What's wrong with the system? They actually noticed that the judge would accept the recommendation of the system for white prisoners. But for African-American prisoners, they would overrule the system. So again, you can build a perfect system, but if the users are you know, bringing in their own biases, you can still break the system. So, so you're absolutely right about this, this like sequential, like you have to interrogate all the pieces of the, of the puzzle. Much of the data, the algorithms are based on our company proprietary. How do we balance data set and algorithm availability with company privacy and confidential information? Maybe I can give it a go. I mean, this is hyper complex, right? I feel that the whole world of data and for a consumer to understand data flow is like just completely difficult to understand. And it's, I don't know if anybody really understands how data flow in this world at all. Um, but one thing that you can at least start by doing as an entrepreneur is to be transparent and have a really clear agreement with people of like, what do I get and what do you get? Because I feel one big part and the problem in the ad economy is that it's built on the premise that users don't understand how we make money. And so they become product. And I, it's a big educational project to make users understand how data actually flows and how money is made. But I feel that's, that's at least the beginning that you actually write terms of service and privacy policies that, that are meant to be read and understood by users. And so from there, people understand what data are they providing and what will happen with this data and how, how is this data going to be kept private and how might it be used for different purposes. And as a user, you can then choose the companies that you agree with, you know, but you need, there needs to be transparency. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of power dynamics, it is a power dynamic when Google has all the data, right? And then you're a startup or you're a researcher or you're an entrepreneur and you're trying to change the system, but they have all the data. Um, so. Yeah, so really it's even, I mean, I can talk for myself, like we really want people to understand how data flows. It's a big challenge to, to explain, right? So maybe we need some sort of certification where there is a label, like we have, you know, organic food. It's like, this is, you know, a company with good data practices. So as a consumer, you can navigate because I think it's literally impossible for the average consumer to understand how data flows and what's actually happening with their data.
there's the beginning of that too, the, from the, uh, the famously um, renamed FAT conference on fairness, accountability, and transparency. They have the um, data sheets, the data sets to start labeling data. So at least we know the provenance, the way we know about our food or our drugs, um, where the data comes from. And I think there's also model cards from the same Timnit Gebru, who's sort of like a goddess in this area of uh, fairness um, and runs a team at Google um, model cards for model sets as well. That's so people are beginning to do this, but I also want to say, I love this idea of a Hippocratic oath for AI. I mean, they just start to bring in the, the value, the values aspect of it from the very beginning. Also, I would like to mention Hippocratic oaths, I think are great. Uh, the challenge with Hippocratic oaths is that many people don't remember them. Like if, when a doctor is doing a surgery, she's often not thinking about the Hippocratic oath. So Hippocratic oaths, I think are good and we should do when to like kind of create and spark a movement. And then what's better in my opinion than Hippocratic oaths are checklists. So the reason why airplanes and flights are so safe is that pilots go through and they go through a set of checklists. And so if you're going to release an algorithm or you're releasing a system, maybe one of the checklist items is that you've talked to your engineers to make sure that they're actually doing what's in your privacy policy. Many sites have a privacy policy that doesn't actually link to what the company is actually doing behind the scenes, not because it was intentionally bad, but just because the legal team doesn't talk to the engineering team. So I think there's lots of mechanisms and in science, there's a group, I think it's Atul Gawande who wrote the checklist manifesto. And I think that's a really powerful implementation version of a Hippocratic Oath. Excellent. Uh, should we have more policymakers trained on AI? And should we have an international agency take the lead and create mandatory laws or, or some sort of guidelines in this aspect? I, I, you, uh, more, more knowledge is better. More awareness is better. And yes, I think policymakers really should be, that would go a long way to their understanding they're understanding what's coming at them and the, the, the uh, ramifications of a lot of the decisions they're making. So for sure, I'm not sure who should govern it at the moment, personally, but uh, more, more information is better, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, I think there should be checks and balances between policymakers and people that are actually building and delivering and maintaining and using these products. So policy is one thing, but a lot of times it's, you know, it's in hindsight. So something bad has happened and now policymakers create policies to prevent that from happening again. Um, the problem with, you know, AI that can do harm is that the people that are the most vulnerable actually take the hit, right? And so some people are in a position where they're never hit by some of these biases and some of these missteps. Um, so yeah, policy is one, one of many things that have to take place to ensure that people aren't harmed. With that last question, I just want to thank all of our panelists from all around the world uh, for joining us today. And one last thought, uh, the future of AI can be good. Uh, we just have to make sure that that future becomes a reality. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in to the Future Positive Podcast. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new episode. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with your friends and fellow optimists. And remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback is important. Speaking of AI, XPRIZE and Cognizant have partnered to launch the Pandemic Response Challenge, a challenge focused on developing AI and data-driven systems to predict COVID-19 infection rates and prescribe intervention plans that regional governments, communities, and organizations can implement to minimize harm when reopening their cities and restarting their economies. You can learn more at xprize.org slash pandemic response.
This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people on Rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.